Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 141 for the 2nd of April, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski here in Las Vegas, Nevada, coming to you with my friend Paul Duckling. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Chester. How's Vegas? Well, you know, uh, I left Vancouver and we're just wrapping up our, our winter, which for us means gray and rain. And I'm here in Vegas looking out the window over a swimming pool and palm trees. So uh, my, my spirits are brightened. I was quite entertained yesterday on April Fool's Day to see uh, your, your posting on Naked Security kind of having a bit of fun as opposed to trying to trick our readers since we, we, we are security professionals and perhaps it's a better look to be trusted all the time and not trusted most of the time. Um, yeah, you seem to have a bit of fun there. Yes, we took three security stories and uh, turned them into verse. So you can go to Naked Security, you can read them, or you can have a listen to them being recited. They're only about a minute each. So it actually might be a way of... Uh, getting the message across to people who don't like to listen to what they would otherwise consider boring technical prose. <laughs> well, and, and there's there's some rumors that there's one that didn't make the article, uh, something related to uh, Adobe's lessons learned or something? Well, Chester, now you mention it. Uh, yes, there is a fourth poem. I just thought the page had got a bit long with three poems in it. So I'll run it by you and see what you think. It goes like this. I want to store some passwords. I've only got a few. Perhaps I'll write them straight to disk. Is that the thing to do? It shouldn't be too difficult to make the file secure so that viruses and hackers cannot read it anymore. Or what if I encrypt them all with a random secret key using AES encryption and employing CBC? And what about the password hints? Just where should they be stored? Since they don't contain the passwords, can encryption be ignored? Or is it best to hash each one and mix it with a nonce, and mix and mix and mix again, instead of mixing once? I think I'll take the last approach. It seems the best to choose. Then I won't be like Adobe when it comes to making news. There you go, folks. That is a Chet Chat exclusive. <laughs> but that's, that's great advice. Uh, it's summed up very well in, in a poem. And in fact, there you wrote a story... Uh, for folks that take it a little more seriously, you, we do have an article on Naked Security with advice for people that are uh, required to store passwords in, in web apps and that kind of thing as well, right? Yes. Uh, I think it's called Serious Security, How to Store Your Users' Passwords Safely. Uh, using Adobe as an example of things that seem okay, like, hey, let's encrypt everything with one key, but uh, weren't necessarily the best approach. So the, as part of a ceremony at the Computer History Museum, Microsoft unveiled the source code for a very early version of DOS and Word. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the precise versions. I think it was DOS 2.0 and Word 1.1. DOS 2 is there. Uh, go and have a look at it. It's quite interesting. But even cooler, DOS 1. MS-DOS 1.25 which is exactly the same as IBM DOS 1.1, but this is the first time that it was shipped in two forms. IBM got one version, and a very slightly modified version went out as MS-DOS to OEMs, and that's the one that all the clone manufacturers used, and the one that made DOS the big happening thing. It's really down to three files, one of which is only 22 lines long. Tim Patterson's original lean, mean, and clean assembler source code. So that's a bit of a, a trip down memory lane. 
The word is word for Windows 1.1. Now, there, there were some security lessons learned uh, and pointed out by uh, our, our colleague Gabor. Um... Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's not just about a trip down memory lane. As you say, there is a, there is a side that justifies us mentioning it. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think having, we all know the, the importance of having a strong foundation for a structure like our homes or, and we know that the same is true largely in computers as well. I mean, in fact, it's one of the reasons I think so many of our, our um, Apple fans that read Naked Security are always uh, the first to step up and say, Apple's based on Unix, the strongest security foundation and couldn't possibly have a vulnerability and, you know, all these types of things that we, we, we always get when we write about Apple security things. And there were some interesting notes in the code that Gabor found, wasn't there, you know, related to kind of a turning point in the code going, if we do this, we may have, you know, future implications from this decision that may be undesirable. But unfortunately, it sounds like the wrong decision was made. Yes. The, the reason that Gabor was zappy, as naked security readers will probably know him, was particularly interested in the word source code is that he did a lot of early work in how you would deal with the plague in the mid-1990s of word macroviruses. So he had a special interest in Word 1.1 because word viruses back in the day go all the way back to Word 2, but there weren't ever any for Word 1.1. So he wanted to know, could they have headed all this off at the pass? And he found this comment that said, note, global macros will be selected over commands automatically. And the person in this comment said, if it is decided that the user cannot replace global commands with a macro, hey, then this code is designed so that, you know, it'll be easy to change. And as, uh, as Zappi noticed, my goodness, if only somebody had listened to that, because that would have made uh, macroviruses very, very much more difficult to write. It didn't help that Microsoft also in Word 2 introduced a macro copy function which made it easy to move macros into and out of the user's own Word environment, which meant that not only could you write malicious code, Trojan horses, you could make them viruses, you could make them spread automatically by themselves. These two factors combined, Zappi said, led to the emergence of macroviruses dominant for a decade. Without these two, the 1990s would have been totally different. You can quote me on that. So I have. <laughs> Well, uh, those are wise words from our, our colleague, uh, uh, Zappi. So I see that you wrote an article uh, for Naked Security uh, on the end of XP, 42 days before it's sort of truly out in the cold, if you will. Uh, and there was some good piece of advice in there for folks that may be stuck with XP a little longer than they'd like. Uh, so you may want to check that out. I think you, you linked to our podcast, right? Our techno. Yes, I did. And maybe I should just explain the 42. Well, of course... It's a hat tip to the late Douglas Adams. And a, a, a number of people have already said to me, oh, no, in your article, no, it's next week, XP ends. And actually, in that podcast you mentioned, you were the guy who pointed out to me that really, on the 8th of April, support for XP ends. Strictly speaking, for another month, you can argue that you're no worse off than any other version of Windows. Uh, and it just turns out, as a little bit of a lark, that that's 42 days. And we've also put together eight tips. Uh, we've tried to be completely unjudgmental. Let's assume you're not going to make it in the next 42 days. Here are eight things you can do that will help you get that risk under control. 
Now I'm going to switch gears a little bit to privacy. We, we talk about privacy quite frequently in the podcasts and, and on Naked Security, but in this case, it was a, a congressional hearing, I guess. They were inviting uh, organizations to testify before Congress about some of the privacy and data breach problems that have been happening. And I guess Snapchat uh, was invited by, by the U.S. Congress and just didn't bother to show up. I mean, it made a lot of people uh, react quite angrily, but I, I guess they're not under an obligation necessarily to appear if they're not being, if they're not testifying, they're, if they're just being asked to contribute. You know, do private companies, I guess, you know, should private companies, maybe is a better question, uh, participate in these types of things and part of the public discourse? I mean, it's not certainly going to make them any more money to show up. It's only going to cost them money, right? Well, Chester, yes and no. I would suggest that some kind of community engagement, whether that's with non-governmental groups or with the public service in your country, that you stand as a software vendor to get an awful lot out of that. And that's what you know. I found and I know you found and others in Sophos who've been active in trying to trying to work with the world to make it a more secure place are found. Because you're sitting down with people who really want to solve the same kind of problem that you do, but they're coming at it perhaps from a regulatory or a legislative angle. If you're a software company, why wouldn't you want to be involved in that? Otherwise, you're going to end up with laws that don't really serve the right sort of purpose. So it's almost as though you have to be in it to win it. And you know what? So much information does get shared there that you're bound to come away with something which will help you make your software better. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I mean, I, I work with our local and federal policing agencies uh, on cases sometimes. We help them with malware samples. We communicate things. But in addition to that, we, we do get invited occasionally to the table to talk about policy. And, you know, where I live in British Columbia, the the provincial government's been considering licensing or, you know, private investigators licenses, for example, for forensic investigators who are uh, dismantling hard drives, you know, looking for data that, that may be used in, in civil or criminal cases. And they've s sought out the input of security leaders in the community through our, sp you know, security special interest groups, some of us in the private sector, etc., to come to, you know, the provincial capital and have a chat with them and, and express our concerns or our support or whatever we have to say about it so that they can hopefully get to a balanced point of, of rules that make sense for everybody to play by. Yes, and I would have thought that based on Snapchat's history that they have something to contribute. Uh, I think the reason they made the headlines is Senator Jay Rockefeller came out publicly and said, you know, they must be hiding something, which to me was a giant irony because the one thing that seems to have been a problem for Snapchat before is when they've promised they could hide things, like photos you've taken that are supposed to be deleted or the phone number you've entrusted to them, they've absolutely failed to do so. So I would have thought they'd have had more to gain by showing up than by going, ah, we already think we know the answers. Well, um, I'm going to end this week's chat chat with a more positive uh, note. As usual, we like to try to provide some useful advice to people. And I know we've, we've, um, we've certainly flogged this camel more than a few times now, but World Backup Day was last week. And it is a good time to remind everyone how important backups are. I mean, we've talked about them a lot during the crypto locker crisis. And, you know, anytime somebody's losing a bunch of information that's not backed up, we have to come back to going, why have you not done a backup? You, you're a Mac user. And I, my understanding is this is quite easy to do for Mac users, right? You, with the, uh, was it Time Capsule? Or 
time machine. Yes, well, Mac uh, has a thing called FileVault, which is a full disk encryption system. So very well recommended to use that on your Mac. Uh, same idea as BitLocker on Windows. Basically, it encrypts everything. So you don't have to worry about, oh dear, did I put that file in a temporary folder where it's not going to be encrypted? The disadvantage of full disk encryption or FDE, of course, is that it's seamlessly decrypted when you access the files. So if you copy them off your computer to, say, USB drive, external drive, then they're automatically decrypted as they're copied. So on the Mac, as uh, I understand on Windows with BitLocker, you can use exactly that same technology to create an encrypted USB volume or with a Mac with Time Machine, a backup volume, so that the file's read off your local hard disk, it's decrypted so it can be processed, and when it's written to the external device that you're going to take and put in your safety deposit box, it's re-encrypted on the way out. Just a reminder to everybody, when we have a thing like World Backup Day, it's kind of like quit smoking day. It's the day you go in and decide that you're going to become a non-smoker for the rest of your life. It's not that you say, oh, I'll have 24 hours off the evil weed. Uh, exactly the same. World Backup Day is to get you to think about doing backups forevermore. Because, as you say, they don't just protect you against crypto locker. They protect you against any mechanism by which your data might be messed up altered by you inadvertently or stolen or otherwise become unavailable through hardware failure. And mass storage is quite affordable. I, I started out with some new hard disks for my backups uh, last week, and I purchased a four terabyte hard disk drive for 169 Canadian dollars. So um, that's about 150 US dollars. I mean, if I can afford to have all the data and computers I have, I can probably afford that disk. And uh, there's some great cloud solutions out there as well. We're not going to endorse any products or talk about anything specifically. What we want to endorse is that you do your backups. And that will conclude Software Security Chat Chat 141. As always, you can get the latest security news at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And for all of our audio recordings and podcasts and materials, you can get all that stuff out at soundcloud.com slash Until next time, stay secure.